This morning we are going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. If you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there. If you didn't bring one with you this morning, you should find one uh, under a seat in front of you if you do want to um, have a hard copy of the text. Um, and then if you don't own a Bible, um, we are going to just invite you to keep that one, take that one uh, with you because we believe that you should have access to Scripture. So again, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. So if you can, if you're willing and able, um, can you stand with me for the reading of the text? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Lauren said... We are uh, in the middle of a series in First John called Light and Love Anchored Together in Christ. And so we've been talking through, or Eric kicked us off last week, talking through kind of line by line, verse by verse, First uh, John. Uh, the disciple of Jesus wrote, um, well, he wrote four books, uh, three epistles, and the Gospel of John. And we're focused on his first epistle and, and how these, I would say his first epistle and, and the book of John are very connected uh, one commentator says it like this, says, uh, John's gospel is written to uh, make sure that everyone has an opportunity to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he wants everybody to know Jesus. And then John's epistle, or First John, is written so that you would know that you know that Jesus is Lord. And those are kind of how they're paired up. Uh, so on one end, he tells the life and the story of Jesus so that everybody would know this is the son of God. This, this, this guy's not just a prophet. He's not just a, a good man. He's not just a teacher. This is this is God incarnate. The word became flesh, John chapter 1, verse 14. And then 1 John's written that you would know and be assured that you are anchored in the life of Jesus himself. And uh, Eric did a great job to kind of kick us off. I wanted to maybe make, mention one other thing before we jump into the text this morning. Um, I think there's a primary way that Christians can get off track in pursuing assurance that they are in Christ. And it's primarily based on working hard to be obedient so that they know that they're in Christ. And by that, I think it's, a, it's, some of it's just the way in which we read the scriptures. I think we read it through a moral lens rather than a redemptive lens. And by that, I mean, we read the scriptures and see them as thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And we mostly try to, you know, not make God mad. Okay, some of this could even play into the way that you were raised, whether you have parents or not, you know, parents or no parents or, or half parents, whatever it may be. Uh, I think that there's a psychology behind it, but we kind of live uh, underneath the reign of God in such a way that we just don't want to make him too mad. Or, and not so much that we want to please him, we just kind of want to stay out of his wrath. And, and that's the moral lens that we might look through. And I want to make this as a caveat. I do believe that the, the Bible has a, a, a moral tinge to it. I believe there's a moral vision given to us in the Bible. I just don't think that's the primary lens through which we should read the scriptures. I think it's a redemptive story. 
and that sin is identified in the story or in the grand narrative of redemption, which is God's plan to make right what went wrong in the very earliest stages of the Bible. And so I think that what can happen is how can we be sure that we know Jesus? Well, we're living right, we're doing the right things, we're stepping up in the areas of our lives that we need to step up. Uh, we're humbling ourselves, we're treating our, our wives or our husbands well, we're treating our kids well, we're treating our neighbors well. And I think all of those things are good things. I just don't think that they should be primary drivers of what we should self-examine. Um, and I may put it like this, you can't live a life for Jesus without living a life with Jesus. And when you try that, it becomes very difficult, so much so that you'll always end up hitting kind of a, a brick wall, hit at some obstacles. Let me say that again. You can't live a life for Jesus without living a life with Jesus. And by that, I mean you can't live this God-glorifying life without a vibrant relationship with him, that there's this constant talk in the book of 1 John about union and communion with Christ. So if I had to give you like a snapshot, a theme of what John's gonna over and over again say, he's gonna say we shouldn't, we shouldn't live our lives for Jesus unless we are committed to living a life with Jesus and that that in the end leads us to living a life with one another. It's, this, is, this book is the ultimate like love God, love people series because over and over again, John's gonna be saying, if you say that you love God, but you don't love your brother, that you're a liar, that we ought to love our brother and we should have a love for God. And that when we have a love for God, the commands of God aren't burdensome to us and that we end up loving one another. And this is just like a continual theme through 1 John. And so this morning we're gonna be talking about in verses five through 10, how we can find our assurance in Christ or be anchored together in a life of repentance. And so before I jump in there, what I wanna do is if you would just bow your heads with me, I wanna pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to illuminate the word and that truly Jesus would be a light to us this morning. Father, I pray for the weary soul in our congregation this morning, trying really hard to measure up, but falling short. For the mom that feels overwhelmed, trying so hard to raise her children well, trying so hard to love her husband well, trying so hard to honor you, Jesus, and finding regular guilt and shame around her shortcomings. For the man in the room who is battling, Lord, to look at his job as a gift, to work heartily as unto you, Jesus, and not for the sake of man, and yet keeps coming back to bitterness, keeps coming back to anger. Father, for the weary soul that's walking the difficult path of trying to earn their salvation, Lord, I, I pray that this morning would be a breath of fresh air, like coming up after holding your breath for too long. And Holy Spirit, would you just illuminate your word in such a way that we would simultaneously feel conviction and comfort because the gospel's true. Thank you, Jesus that the cross is not an offense without it being a glorious gift, that it can be both, <laughs> that although it can seem offensive to us because it hurts that we're sinners and we deserved that, that it's a real gift because you were willing to do what no one else could do. Thank you, God, for that. So now speak through your word. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Give us what we need, not what we always want. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, 1 John chapter 1, we're going to kick it off in verse number 5. So this is what John says. John says, this is the message we've heard from him, him being Jesus, and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is going to be the first characteristic theme you see in 1 John. There are two, and I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag for the next one. God is light is the first one, and God is love is the second one. God is light and God is love. That's 1 John. So we, we named the series appropriately, all right? You guys can thank me later. God is light and God is love. The first one is God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Your Bible has this, has this theme of light and darkness riddled throughout it. It starts in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light and he separated the light from the darkness. And it rolls completely through all the way to Revelation where it says that there's no sun anymore in the city of God because Jesus himself is our light and there's no need anymore for the setting of this sun, right? Because Christ is the light of the city. So this theme of light and darkness also holds with it the companionship of life. Light and life go together in your Bible. I wanted to read a few of, a few of the scriptures that you find, uh, Old and New Testament, and hopefully they'll roll up behind me. Psalm chapter 27, verse one says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Psalm 36, verse nine says, for you is life's fountain in your light, we will see light. So Isaiah chapter 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. Isaiah 60 verse 3, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your radiance. Isaiah chapter 60 verses 19 through 20 says, the sun will no longer be your light by day and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set and your moon will not fade for the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your sorrow will be over. Micah chapter seven, verse eight says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. The gospel of John Chapter one, verse nine, the true light, that's Jesus, who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then John chapter number eight, verse number 12 says this, then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. See, this theme kind of runs throughout your Old and New Testament regularly over and over and over again, that God is our light and in him there is no darkness at all. And that, that when we walk with our God who is light, that there's a fullness of life. Think of human flourishing. Think of vibrancy. That's what this, this idea of God being life to us. And this should make sense to us if we have any bearing on the scriptures itself because God in Genesis chapter one and two is constantly bringing things to life, right? It says that there's a void over the darkness of the deep and that the spirit is hovering over the waters and our God says, let there be light. And from that point on, there's this continual giving of life. Trees and mountains and creatures and whether it be winged creatures or sea creatures or grass or, you know, God created the vastness, the stars slung into the sky, life springs up. It culminates in God creating male and female, right? Male and female, he created them in his own image and then life is what he commands us. Go and multiply, create more life is what he says. This all comes from God who is our light. And in Jesus, there's a light that leads to life 
the wholeness and truth that we were meant to experience is wrapped up not in a way or in a series of rules, but in a person, Jesus. Now that is what's unique to Christianity, is that we do not say that there's a list of rules or kind of a scroll that we have to unfold and try to live our lives according to this standard, but we say that there's a relationship to be had that God, the the light giver and the life giver, wants a relationship with us. And it's in that that the way of life is lived. That's unique, and that's important. And that's what John's trying to tell us here. That the Jesus came with one singular message, and it was that our God is light, and he's come to give life. And in him there's no darkness at all. Now what is the darkness? What does it mean that there's no darkness in God? Well, in Genesis 3, and you guys remember this, we go to this a lot, it's a very formative passage in the Bible. In January, we're talking about going there for a significant portion of time, one, two, and three. But in Genesis 3, we see that sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion, God shows up after that rebellion and asks a simple question. He says, Adam, where are you? Adam and his wife had realized that they were naked and that they were ashamed. They sewed fig leaves together and they went and hid in the darkness. And as they went to hide into the darkness, God walks through the cool of the day. I want to point out to you that God's question is not an informational question. It's an invitational question. What do I mean? God knows where Adam is. This is like moms when you walk in and your kids are doing something they shouldn't do, and you say, what are you doing? Right? Anybody? You already know. If your kid says, you know, giving you information about what he's doing, he's most likely going to be lying or trying to lie, right? Or trying to, because you know what they're doing. It's, it's, Rhetorical. God's question is the same. God is omniscient. He knows all things and he's omnipresent. So wherever they were, he was there too. As he walks in the cool of the garden, where are you, Adam? It's not informational. What is it? It's invitational. Where you are right now is not where I created you to be. Why aren't you coming like you used to to walk in the cool of the day with me? It's a call to him. Come over here. He's inviting Adam out of hiding. He's inviting Adam out of darkness. So John says here, it's only in the light of Jesus that we find life, and sin has a way of encouraging us into the darkness. Sin has a way of bringing shame and guilt that presses us away from God into darkness, and that our God is light. The book of John is going to say that this is the judgment, that the light came into the world, and that the darkness hated the light and didn't want anything to do with the light. That there's a way that we see Jesus, and you can see this throughout all of the Gospels. When they heard Jesus' words, they repulsed from him and didn't want anything to do with him, because ultimately, light shining out the darkness when you're in the darkness is actually really off-putting, and it uncovers some things that feel very shameful. And so the world wanted to push away from Jesus. So the question that we have to ask here, and I think it's what John is doing, and I think John's doing this graciously, is how can we be sure that we are experiencing an existence that is marked by the light and life of Jesus if that's what he's after for us? Like if Jesus came to give us this life, this vibrancy, this fullness, this wholeness, how can we be sure that we're marked by that and that we're not still kind of repulsing back in hiding? And I say that that's a grace from John because I think one of the worst things that could happen to us is for us to pretend that everything was okay and in the end we're not really walking in the light of Jesus. I think that would be terrible, wouldn't it? It's like I have one of my favorite pastors, his name is Matt Chandler. He always says, if Christianity is just a hobby for you, buy a boat. It's way more fun. Like how difficult it is to have Christianity as a hobby where you're constantly having to like, you know, chisel your, you know, your moral character to be, perceived as something by people that you're really not, and there's this weird uh, game of masquerade that we play with each other. That's an awful existence if it's just a hobby. 
But if we're truly in love with Jesus, then this work that we're submitting to and that we're diligently joining and partnering with God for is worthy of something. But John's saying the only option that's not on the table for him is faking. It's just, that'd be a terrible existence. So he lovingly tells us, how do we know? Okay, so verse six, and this is my first point. Jesus, our light, helps us to tell others the truth. Jesus, our light, helps us to tell others the truth. Listen to verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, John is gonna use three if we say statements. These if we say statements are meant to show us that there's a disconnect between what we say and what we believe at times or what we say and how we live at times and that we ought not ignore that because that's the path to living fake. That we ought to press into that. Why is there, why is there a disconnect between what I say and what I truly believe or what I say and how I actually live? To press into that is to walk into the light. So you're not a hypocrite if you recognize the problem and press into the problem. You're a hypocrite if you recognize the problem and say, well, let's just kind of mask over that and make sure that nobody else sees the problem. I saw it. Does this make sense? Like you're not a hypocrite if you open the closet and say, oh my gosh, this is terrible. You're a hypocrite if you close the closet and, and put a big sign on it that says clean, right? And so John says, let's press into that. Because what does John know? John knows that you and I, we are walking contradictions we get way too comfortable with our inner division that's inside of ourselves. We are constantly at least two people, maybe three, maybe four, and I'm not talking about personality disorders. I'm just saying we have a divided self. God knows this about us. And these inner conflicts create a major problem in discerning good and evil because we are prone to self-justification. We will often try to redefine evil to appease our divided self. Even if our conscience begins to get after us, we will try to calm our conscience by redefining evil. And it's important that we define sin as Jesus does so that we don't fall into the lies and deception of the enemy. Now I wanna point out something here that I thought is really interesting. And this is gonna be regular throughout the epistle, the first epistle of John. Did you pick up that he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, that's vertical fellowship. And yet we walk uh, or, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But watch this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, check this out, one another. That's horizontal fellowship. So why is he using these two things? If I were writing it, I would think that he's, to use the reconciliation language of the Bible, that it would say, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with him truly. But if we walk in darkness, we don't have fellowship with him truly. Does that make sense? It seems like a or one plus one would equal two but he doesn't do that. He does a whole other thing where he says, no, but if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. The Greek word for fellowship here is koinonia, or, and I, you would not even want to know that at all except for what it means. What does it mean? Fellowship, communion, partnership, intimacy, nearness. It gives a sense here of mutual generosity, a mutual giving and receiving that in the life that Jesus has set out for us as his children, we're supposed to have that kind of koinonia vertically and horizontally and that those things are interconnected. That to truly walk in the light, we need each other. Yes, we need God to be able to shine the light on what's there, but we need each other to be able to truly walk in the light as he is in the light. We need that mutual receptivity of someone knowing you in the deeper parts of who you are and then being able to tell you the truth and accept you and receive you because of Christ. 
that there's something about someone receiving you even whenever you admit what you don't want to admit, like Adam hiding in the bushes and not wanting to come forward. There's something about someone receiving you that heals the heart. Thomas Merton says this. He says, we learn to live by living together with others and by living like them, a process which has its disadvantages as well as its blessings. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you say amen to that, right? Doesn't community have its disadvantages and its blessings? Well, what Thomas Merton's saying is that there's not another way that Christ has set out for us to grow apart from each other. Like he doesn't have an intensive plan for us if we just don't like people. Like, listen, I'm an introvert. Is there another like track for Christian growth, right? I mean, don't, don't we all have those moments where we just wanna opt into that track, right? And I'm not saying there's not a place for solitude. I'm saying the primary way, the primary process through which we grow is actually in human relationship, which has its blessings and its disadvantages. Its disadvantages we know very well. These are things like gossip, like division, like someone who betrays you. If you ever felt betrayal, then, you've kn- then the opportunity there was to know Christ more deeply because Christ was betrayed by his best friends, right? Jesus was not immune to the difficulties of relationship. In fact, he felt them more deeply than any. But there's also blessings to relationships, right? Like the things that we see in the book of Acts where they're all in the upper room together of one mind and one accord, believing that God is going to do something unique by showing up. Like at the Passover where they hand the the cup of communion around for the very first time and Jesus says, I now call you my friends, you're not my servants, you're my friends. And I'm gonna go to the cross and I'm gonna die. Whenever he calls Peter, James, and John with him and says, come up and pray with me because I am in anguish and they pray together. Have you ever had that moment where you were in a terrible place and someone wrapped their arm around you and prayed over you? Blessing in that. There's healing in that. There's growth in that. And I think that's what John's after here. He says that, yes, we have to walk in the light by confessing sin to the Lord, but we also walk in the light when we have relationships where we're able to confess our sins to one another and be healed. That's why we say at Providence that home groups aren't Bible studies, home groups are not service groups, home groups aren't classes. Home groups instead are our attempt to create a context where relationships can develop and God can creep in unannounced and start doing something really unique. That's what we really have, that's a vision that we have for home groups. It's it's why you might say, well, what are we after? What are we really doing here? And I would say what's happening prayerfully in our home groups is not six weeks through the book of Philemon and why that was used for the abolition of slavery, although that's awesome. The goal of home groups is this really odd and hard to measure with metrics growth tool that people, getting people around one another to know one another, to share with one another, to pray with one another, to even sin against one another and experience forgiveness is what God intended for us to experience him. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about friendship and community. He says, in friendship, we think we have chosen our peers, but in reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart, but for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. 
It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Relationships are God's way of helping us heal and find wholeness. And I would say that many of us, we struggle most with sin because we struggle most with relationships. We're relationally dysfunctional. And I wanna give you an encouragement this morning to say, if you find yourself relationally dysfunctional, you're in good company. Every sinner who's ever been born has had that problem because that is ultimately what happened in Genesis 3. Dysfunctional relationships, mistrust, betrayal, hunger for power and control, they all find their place in the context of how we relate to one another. Abuse, suffering, hurt. It's why John tells us to be honest before one another's about our righteousness or our lack thereof because he's teaching us that our honesty before others is gonna lead to the koinonia that we so desperately need. Now, I love this. I hope it's freeing to you because the first point from John here, if you're not catching it, is you don't have to pretend to be righteous with people. Like, if you came in this morning and you're like, you know what, when someone asked me, how are you doing it, I'd say, blessed, great. Now, here's, there's another side of that, right? Like, we, we don't, nobody likes to hang out with Eeyore where it's, how are you doing? How long do you have? All right, okay, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but you, you don't have to put on a mask, a facade, a front about who you are. And in fact, when you do that, you not only rob everyone else of knowing you, but you rob yourself of being known. The fellowship, koinonia, is, in the, con, is the context through which we begin to come out of hiding and into the light. And it's in the light that we can be known, we can be whole. But then John goes on. Starting in verse eight, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Point number two is this. Jesus, our light, helps us to tell ourselves the truth. Jesus, our light, helps us to tell ourselves the truth. If we say to ourselves, I have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. We have to do everything possible to reject the cultural lie that sin is no big deal. Why? Um, because sin being no big deal ultimately leads to a redefining of sin, which leads to a sinless theology, which leads to no point for the cross. And I'm gonna get there in a minute. Well, John will. But we have to reject the idea that there's no sin in us and when we feel the inner conscience that tells us that something is wrong, but we justify it and pretend that it's okay, we're lying to ourselves and we have to fight against that desperately. Because when Christians try to redefine sin, they're denying the life and truth that lives within them. And most of our lives, or most of our lives that we tell ourselves, keep us from doing the one thing that can bring true healing, which is to repent. See, if we continue to tell ourselves it's no big deal, we can't really find the confession and repentance that'll lead to life. And the enemy's very keen on us convincing ourselves that it's not a big deal because then he could press you into the darkness. And it's there where he begins to, to bear forth his fruit in you and not the Lord's. What's the word repentance, Court? Repentance is ultimately a confession of agreement with God's point of view about your situation. That's part one. So what is confession? Confession is very simple. You're agreeing with God about your sin in your life. Confession is saying, God's right about my marriage. God's right about my speech. God's right about my sexuality. God's right about my intimacy. God's right about my thought life. God's, that's confession. It's saying, here's what God has said, and I agree with him, and what that does is indict me, but I confess, he's right, I'm wrong. That's confession. And that's the first half of repentance. It's saying, you know what, God's right. But the second half is this soul level cry for grace and forgiveness and strength to walk in the light. 
there's this something that happens in us as we cry out to a God that we believe loves us and is going to forgive us and has promised to forgive us, and that that forgiveness has a way to give us strength again, to live a different life, to walk in the light with him, so that from the strength of union and relationship with Jesus, we can live a life for him. We truly repent when the Spirit shines light on sin and we agree that it's abhorrent and offensive to God and others and that it's even worthy of judgment. But since God sent Jesus to stand in our place, we cry out to him for grace and he acts. Can I encourage you, believer? When we cry out to God, he acts. When you cry out to God, he will act. There's a joy in heaven, the Bible says, over every sinner that repents. If you go into that text, it says that God stands up from his throne. He delights and dances and rejoices over every sinner that repents. There's a smile on the face of God when we come and agree with him. Why? Because God's a masochist? He's just interested in our grovel? No, because he knows that's the step that leads to wholeness that he made us for, that he died for. And repentance is so much more than just the simple I'm sorry's. It's the depth, soul level cry of I know the relationship has been broken over this. You guys catch that? Like, this is different than like, you know, I didn't, this is an outdated analogy, but didn't fill up the ice trays. <laughs> remember ice trays? I remember whenever I was younger that if I didn't fill up the ice trays that my family would get really mad at me. I would always leave like one cube and they go and, you know, you're just ready for ice water. They go, what in the, who did this? And I'm like hiding in the back. I'm like with a cup of iced tea, you know? <laughs> That's an I'm sorry, right? It's like, I didn't do that to, to break the relationship. Like, I hate you guys, watch this. You know, I didn't do that. It's an I'm sorry moment. But there are things, and especially, I mean, if you think through with your children, with your marriage, that you know the relationship was marred by this and repentance is what brings reconciliation and restoration. And anything less will only lead to bitterness. If you try to put simple I'm sorry's over true marring of relationship, it actually just lets the wound fester, right? And even if you, if you say, hey, it's a ceasefire, have you ever had that relationship where someone says, hey, I'm sorry I did that, but you knew it wasn't real soul level repentance, and so then you still had that weirdness between you? It was hard to rebuild the trust because you knew deep down, they just kind of said that because, you know, their home group leader told them to, right? Real repentance offers reconciliation and restoration. I've often been asked the question, why do we talk so often about sin? And I just want to say, it's because sin is so dark and it pervades so much of our being that we can't ignore it. Sin infects and it sickens us. A couple of quotes about sin. This is... um, from a philosopher named Dostoevsky, he says, the one who lies to himself and believes his own lies comes to a point where he can distinguish no truth either within himself or around him. And thus he enters into a state of disrespect towards himself and toward others. Respecting no one, he loves no one. And to amuse and divert himself in the absence of love, he gives himself up to the passions of his vulgar delights and he becomes a complete animal in his vices and all of it from lying to other people and himself. Sin's so corruptive, it's so deceptive. Listen to what Spurgeon says about sin. He says this, the idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so, the truth is not in you, and you have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day, and you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives, or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in himself. 
As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. I love what Spurgeon says here. He goes through this litany of things that you must have ignored. And I think that that lines up with what Dostoevsky says, which is that we, not only is relationship with others at stake, but it's, a re, it's really knowing ourselves that's at stake because the more that we lie to ourselves, we have to start actually pressing away from what's going on in our soul. When we start feeling things, we have to start pushing it away. I feel guilty about that. We have to say, I'm not gonna think about it. And then in order to do that, what you have to do is you have to create a substitute to distract you from your own heart. And I love what they're saying here. They're saying ultimately those substitutes is what becomes our vices. They become the things that destroy us because something's happening in the soul. We wanna distract ourselves from it, so we medicate. And we don't have to medicate with illicit substances. We medicate with anything that will stop us from having to feel like we need to come before a holy God and say, cleanse me. And relationships are God's way of helping us to combat that shame. See, repentance takes place with God and confession takes place in community. I'm gonna say that again. Repentance takes place with God, but confession takes place in community. James chapter five, verse 16 says this, confess your sins one to another and be healed. Therefore, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So Jesus, our light, comes in, he shines light on sin, and he doesn't do it to shame us, but instead he wants to shame the enemy so that darkness will no longer work in our lives. We openly put the enemy to shame when we confess our sins to one another and we look to God for forgiveness and healing. By bringing the sin to light, we are enabled to live a life of love again. John says that when we confess our sins to Jesus, Jesus forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Listen to me and hear me carefully this morning. The heart of the message, you can be forgiven. You can be clean. That's what John's after here. That anything less than this kind of confession and repentance actually keeps us under this lie that we're not forgiven and that we're not clean. And when you're constantly berated with the thought of you're not forgiven, you're not clean, you're not forgiven, you're not clean, your life will ultimately be lived underneath the identity that you created. Not forgiven, not clean. Not forgiven, not clean. Not forgiven, not clean. And John says this is not true. And then he ends with this. Check out 1 John chapter number one, and this is verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, this is his third, if we say, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So point number three, Jesus, our light, helps us to tell the truth about God. Jesus, our light, helps us to tell the truth about God. So when we live a life of repentance, we tell the truth about our God who paid the penalty for sin and died on our behalf. But if we say, or if we live our lives in a way that says that we're not sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness, whether this is overt or covert, we're openly making God a liar because God sent his son specifically because you and I are sinners in need of grace. Does this make sense? So it's the life of the community regularly repenting that shows people, hey, the gospel's not only uh, beautiful and glorious, it's absolutely necessary. So it's not only this amazing invitation, it's not like an addendum to our lives, it is our lives. If we don't have it, if we don't have the gospel, then we don't have anything that allows us to know that we're forgiven, to know that we're cleansed, to know that we're whole in Christ. And so when we deal with sin, we have to try to deal with it in all these fleshly manners. 
And Paul actually combats that by saying, hey, there's a lot of things in the world that will try to help you manage the flesh and they look like they're wise, but in the end they have no power to cleanse you. I want to I give you a challenge. You know, get on Facebook and look at all the ads and see how many of them are atonement offers. <laughs> if you looked prettier, you wouldn't feel so bad. If you, looked, if you were thinner, you wouldn't feel so bad. You know? And listen, I'm all about like, looking prettier and being thinner. That's awesome. You guys are doing a great job with that. <laughs> Go for it. I mean, that's great. I'm just saying, once you get there, isn't there this level of like, either A, I gotta be thinner or prettier, or hey, this didn't really give me what I needed or wanted, right? Because ultimately, there's nothing that can atone for that inner angst and feeling of being unforgiven and being unclean and being a sinner that's divided, being someone who knows what they ought to do and doesn't do what they ought. Romans chapter seven, Paul says it like this, I do the things that I ought not to do, and the things that I ought to do, I don't do. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? he says. Next line, thanks be to our God, to our Lord Jesus Christ. For now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's one way of atonement. There's one way to find wholeness, and John's leading us there. And the answer is through the humble statement that I am a sinner in need of grace. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. Every congregation is a congregation of sinners, as if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. That's true. When we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. That's true too. That's the message of Genesis 3, isn't it? When God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? Rather than just ending it all because of his rebellion and being a traitor. Our God does not just command from on high, even though he knows. He enters into the garden and into, into our mess and says, what happened? And then promises, I'm gonna make it right. On whose dime will you make it right, God? On mine. Because there's no other dimes. <laughs> Jesus is the descent of God to our lives, just as they are, not the ascent of our lives to God, hoping that he might approve when he sees how hard we try. Now, that's the key with, with John here. Is he's saying when we finally admit our sin, when we finally admit that we're broken and that we need God's wholeness, that there's a, there's a moment of freedom where we recognize our God has come down to us. We don't have to climb Jacob's ladder, but instead Jesus climbed down to us and he made the bridge that was broken. And then he didn't say, hey, you got to cross over the bridge. He carried us across it. You see, we often say that we have a relationship with God in Christianity, and that's what marks us as different from other religions in the world, and I think that's so true. Jesus is ultimately leading us. Jesus is calling the shots. Jesus is teaching us how to live. We are a mess, and we need him to remake us. And repentance is this spirit-illumined realization that we've stopped following in the footsteps or walking, or we've walked away from him intentionally or unintentionally. Repentance shows the world that A, God is worthy of trust, and B, God is pursuing us always. And that's a great message, isn't it? Because the inverse of that is when we don't repent and we don't live a life marked by repentance, we tell the world the cross was unnecessary because really we're, we're good. Or it was only necessary at the beginning, like when we were sinners back then. Oh, no. Living a life of repentance shouts the gospel from every crevice of your life. It tells everybody, I don't need, only need grace at summer camp when I was a teenager. I need grace every day. The blood of Jesus cleanses my sin. We should be openly running toward our dad's voice as he looks for us because we are often prone to wander. 
daily we ought to be bringing ourselves before God, confessing our sins in community, because repentance lends the gospel a credibility that it doesn't need, but a credibility to outsiders because it's the gospel being applied. That's what repentance is. It's why in our home groups, hopefully we're not saying, oh no, we have a new person, let's not say anything negative about ourselves. I think you should be more introspective and say, let's make sure that they know just how much we need saving. <laughs> because if not, then what gets, what gets presented is someone comes in, outside or maybe stepping out into the light, and we shine all the lights as though we are the light without the true source. No. We should be coming in and bringing them into the light and say, hey, we have a lot of darkness, a lot of messed up stuff. Hey, when you go into the light, though, our God meets you there. He's amazing. He is welcoming. He's done everything that needs to be done to put this away forever. I've worked really hard over the years pastorally and counseling to not have a change of face when I hear the most crazy of things confessed. Because I try to ask myself, how would the father respond if someone confessed to him the deepest and darkest parts of their heart, whether it be sin against them or sin that they've committed? And I can't imagine that God would go, oh my goodness, oh my me, right? And, and the discipline that I'm trying to work in my heart is to have, what would Jesus' face look like as he welcomes in even the darkest sinner? Like, we're kind of removed from what Jesus' time, and so we don't see it for what it is, but like when he sees Zacchaeus, this dark, nasty sinner, and says, we're gonna have dinner. What was the look of Christ, right? Or when he sees the woman caught in adultery as she's been stripped, vulnerable, and about to be stoned in the middle, How, what's, what's Jesus' face looking like? I think that the community of God can help to practice that by being open and honest about their own sin because it starts to give us a compassion in our hearts that we need whenever you receive compassion from another. Nothing teaches you to welcome people like being welcomed when you feel like you don't deserve it. We should not only be saying forgiveness is offered, we should be saying taste and see. I want to conclude here by saying we don't leave here focused on sin. Let's leave here focused on our Savior. John's point here is to invite us into a life of truth. Sometimes we aren't anchored in the gospel because we're afraid that the gospel is too good to be true for us. It's true for you. It's too good to be true for me. And I just want to tell you that's not true. The gospel is for you this morning. Jesus loves you. When we come to repent of sin, we don't grovel before a landlord. We don't grovel before a unrighteous king, but we come to our father and find healing life and hope in the light of the world, Jesus. So if you'll stand to your feet, I wanna pray for us. Father, now I come before you and I just... Would you highlight the burdens we carry, the hiddenness in us? God, I know how it feels to be sitting with something and squirming inside. Would you make us into a body, a community that's not just willing to confess one to another, but then to take the next step and lend out a hand of love a tender hand of acceptance. As the enemy tries to lie, as the enemy tries to accuse, as the enemy tries to press us back into darkness, Holy Spirit, would you overcome 
his lies in our hearts? Would you turn up your voice louder so that we would come before you and find the true light and love that you offer in your presence, Jesus? God, I pray a specific prayer that in the moments when our prayer volunteers are offered and we push down the need to go and pray with them, God, would you rebuke that in us, that part that the enemy's playing and keeping us from confessing to another? I ask God that you just give us great courage, great strength to come before you and find the healing that you offer. And as we take of the cup of communion, that it would not only be self-reflective, but it'd be fulfilling to know that we're in you, that you don't just call us to live for you, 